Welcome to another episode of It Simply Isn't Done. I'm Barry Petrucci. I'm Just Davenport. Together, we, we are, are the Irreverent Reverends. From Portage Chapel Hill United Methodist Church, we are at the corner of Oakland and Romance in Portage, Michigan, but you don't even need to know that because we're everywhere on the internet. Welcome. Yes, and you are at the Recap Podcast, and we are recapping May 21st, which was the last Sunday in Eastertide. It was, and it was also the completion of our series, now which was I Now I Lay, lay me, me Down, down to, to Sleep. sleep. <laughs> Growing in prayer. Who doesn't love when we speak in unison? It's great. That's a good time. So we ended up, I, I preached on the Lord's Prayer. Um, we used the version in Matthew, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And those who are keeping track, uh, I touched on the Lucan version the previous work, week as I worked on the text immediately following the Lord's Prayer there. So you got it all. You got it all. And uh, we will see you after the message and uh, the scripture for some reflection. This scripture is from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, may your name be revered as holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, good morning again. I hope um, as we've been going through this service, you all have looked to see the written by down under our liturgy because um, our confirmands, they've written it. They have worked on this service for quite a while. They wrote the call to worship, the dedication, the blessing, the welcome. Um, and I think that's a beautiful way and reminder of us being church. They have done a really great job. So congratulate them on that because initially they weren't too jazzed, but it turned out well. <laughs> All right, would you pray with me? Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is the last week of Eastertide and the last message in our series, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, Growing in Prayer. Today, we are specifically looking at the Lord's Prayer. We started the series, you might remember, with what does it mean to pray? What does it mean to actually pray? And Barry preached about then who it is that we pray to. Who are we praying to? Then I took us to communal prayer, what it is and why we do it. And then Barry had the last two weeks um, where he preached about awe and about healing. If you missed any of those and you want to catch up, I remind you, Barry and myself have a weekly podcast where we go through the scripture, we go through the message, and we share some additional reflection. So we reflect on our reflection. <laughs> but if you just want the sermon, it's there. You don't even have to listen to the reflection. It's a good way to catch up. 
But our task for today is specifically diving in to the Lord's Prayer. We heard it earlier. Um, We heard Chase read it as well. What we read today is the version in Matthew. There are only two versions in scripture, and this is actually the longer one, believe it or not. There's a shorter one that's in Luke. And when we were at our worship meeting on Tuesday, we center ourselves with the scripture and we reflect on it together at the beginning of our time. And I can't quite remember who it was, but they said, why did you stop there? Why didn't you include the rest of it? It's missing. Friends, what we read today is the longest version of the Lord's Prayer that we have in the scripture. And I want to go through the history of this prayer with you all. Um, You know, Barry and myself, we care a lot about scriptural context, and we talk about studying scripture, which includes some academic study of how it was made. And I want to go through um, the Lord's Prayer today because it's just one example of why context and study is so important. So um, we can be reminded that our faith is a living faith. And in this case, about 80 or 90 years after Jesus died, two different communities wrote down their tradition and they wrote down different prayers and they produced slightly different results, which is a reminder to us that Our scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is written down by humans, just like us. It's the best collective memory from humans over a few generations. It's important to remember that we actually, we don't know the specific words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, but we can understand the content, we can understand the meaning, we can understand the intent. We're guessing they are similar. And we can kind of see that here. Here are the two versions that we have. Matthew 6, that's 9 through 13, and then Luke 11, 1 through 5. This is all that we have for the Lord's Prayer within Scripture. So we'll get into kind of the process of that and why it is, but I think it's a little bit interesting that here's something we say almost every week, particularly in this service, and we think we lifted it directly from Scripture, but we've actually made some changes and adjustments One of the first versions we have outside of scripture is in the Didache. Now I spoke about that one time before. It is a first century book of worship and catechism. Um, It has the Lord's prayer in it and it says you're supposed to pray it three times a day. And they combined two prayers, right? They combined these two prayers in that and they added a few words to them. Here's something that I think is kind of interesting. Ancient Greek has more tenses than we do in English, right? So it's okay if you're not into grammar, just stick with me. We'll get past it. It's not going to be forever, I promise. (laughs) So, but there's a little bit more nuance. And sometimes you might hear me say, hey, this is a really clunky translation from the Greek. Oftentimes it's because of these tenses. Ancient Greek has more of them. So we don't get as much nuance in English. And we have to do some work to translate things into English. So in Matthew, uh, the tense is called aorist. It's a finite tense, which would mean we have up there, we have forgiven someone a debt, for example. And in Luke, the present tense, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. That kind of changes the meaning, right? From a one-time thing of forgiveness to a state and a being of forgiveness. 
These are some examples of these contextual issues of generations of people kind of writing this down and, and not knowing exactly the words Jesus said, but passing it in an oral tradition. Sometime later, we don't really know when in practice, they added that end bit that we love so much. We call it the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's actually from First Chronicles. So someone was like, Jesus' words are good, but I want to zhuzh it up a little. <laughs> we need a little more pizzazz. So they took that from First Chronicles and they added it on the end. And that's the version we have in the Didache. It's a little shorter than the one we have now. But I think that's interesting. In the 4th and 5th century, um, translators actually copied the version we speak today with the doxology from First Chronicles into manuscripts. And those are what the translators of the King James Version used. So they weren't using the most ancient transcripts. So if you grew up with the King James Bible, it has the whole shebang in there. And a lot of us love that and kind of are drawn to that language. It's not the most, um, it's not the most accurate in terms of transcripts or what we have. But a lot of us, that really means a lot to our hearts. And we kind of say it in that particular way. But I think it's interesting, the scholarship of this. I know I'm getting into the weeds of it. But something as fundamental as the Lord's Prayer, frankly, has a lot of maybes around it. There's a lot of textual criticism that can be done over nine verses in two Gospels over roughly 2,000 years. And I think that's important for us to note and to remember um, for our congregation, especially as we move into summer, um, Pride Month is starting, and we're going to hear a lot of folks say things. Um, we hear a lot of hate rhetoric kind of amp up, and particularly folks saying things like, well, it's in the Bible, and I believe it, and they use it for hateful reasons. I at least wanted to draw these contextual issues to you all for us to note that um, taking the Bible literally and taking it seriously, those are different things. Those are different things, and it requires some work. It requires some work to know what we're reading, why we're reading it, and where it came from. The Bible did not drop down from the sky in English into your hands. <laughs> That's not how it happened. The Holy Spirit inspired humans, and we are doing the best we can as people of faith to tell our story. And so it makes sense for us to often err on the side of love when we read these scriptures and err on the side of not having to know everything. I wanted to offer these you know, kind of nerdy translation things too, um, to reassure our faith. Um, something that I've heard Barry say a lot, I have said as well, it's a Paul Tillich quote. He says, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It is certainty. So we have to approach some of these things with humility, knowing that we're doing the best we can and pray that God will fill in the rest. Even something as fundamental as the Lord's Prayer, we have questions about the scholarship. We're not sure they're exactly Jesus' certain words, but at some level, that's not really the point because we understand the intent of the prayer and we can understand where it's taking us, the process of what it does to our hearts and our wills when we pray it. This falls right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. So in Matthew, Jesus gives some instructions on prayer in the beginning, right? Focus on prayer. It should be on God. It should not be on the clergy. It should not be on the congregants. It should not be on the choir members. It should be on God. We should not try to find the most public place possible to make a spectacle of ourselves when we pray loudly, right? We've all been at the restaurant where that one person needs to loudly show everyone how Christian they are. It's a lot. It's aggressive. <laughs> 
I would maybe suggest that's making a spectacle of oneself, but you know, that's up to God. We remember though that Jesus did go to synagogue, right? He was pro-communal prayer. He prayed together a lot, but didn't want it to display how pious we are, right? It's that display that takes the focus off of God in our prayer. And then finally he says, you don't need a thousand words. You don't need a thousand words. Don't heap up empty words. You already have God's attention. Let me give you some words to say. It's also important for us to remember, this was a prayer from a man who was Jewish, and he spoke it primarily to other Jews. And that is some important context for us to understand as well. Amy Jill Levine describes the structure in her work, um, Sermon on the Mount, and I'm gonna share a little bit of what I gleaned from that. So this borrows from many structures of Jewish prayer. Um, some of us have been to Shabbat before. A lot of the prayers are named for the first line you say. So is this one. We call it the Our Father. We're kind of used to that. Some of us will call it the Lord's Prayer. There are also words that are included that are very specific that are often said over and over in Jewish prayers. In fact, the beginning, Our Father, is so common in Hebrew prayers, they condensed it into one word. Right? So it's one specific word. So that was very familiar to the people listening it. And it's important. The Our Father part is important because it sets the tone that we're in a familial relationship with God. We understand that we are part of God's family. But here's the thing. It was also a political statement. Many of the emperors since Caesar Augustus adopted the title Father of the Fatherland. That's what they were called. So going through the time, Nero, eventually to Tiberius in Jesus' day, um, they would call themselves Father of the Fatherland. So when Jesus says, our Father who is in the heavens, who is in the heavens, that's a political statement. I'm praying to our ultimate authority. I am praying to God of gods. You might be the Father of the fatherlands, but I am praying to the one who rules the universe. The same holds true with your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. In Jesus' day, he was living in a kingdom, ruled by a king and an emperor. And this was a plea for God's ultimate power and authority and how it's different from human forms of government. This was Jesus being prophetic, right? We know there's Herod Antipas. We know there's Pontius Pilate. We know there's Empress Tiberius. He was saying, listen up, God's kingdom come because this y'all have going on, this ain't it. God's kingdom come. Now I wanna talk about the kind of confusing phrase, give us this day our daily bread. Kind of repetitive, no? <laughs> really emphasizing the daily part of it. And for some of us, we find that really beautiful and meaningful. The focus is on today, the focus is on right now, let's be present in a moment. I don't wanna take that from you, but I would love to introduce another linguistic argument about it. I am really compelled that the origins in the Aramaic that Jesus spoke, they didn't trans well, translate well to Greek. In the Aramaic, this would have been akin more to, give us tomorrow's bread today. Give us tomorrow's bread today. This is an eschatological statement, meaning this is a statement about Jesus and God winning ultimately in the end. We hear Jesus and uh, particularly Jesus talk about 
a banquet. Um, there's going to be the kingdom of God looks like a big party where everyone's eating. Eating was a focus of a lot of his ministry. We say that again when Jesus comes again in final victory and we sit at his heavenly banquet. This is a statement saying, hey, God, we want you here and now, and, and we are rooting for you to win, and we will participate in that kingdom coming. And now we get to the sin, trespass, debt language. How many of you are people that grew up saying debtors? Has it been a hard switch here? <laughs> you can catch yourself each time when you say trespasses. We do it a little bit differently. Also in the Aramaic, um, it's the word chob or chopa, and it means sin, debt, or trespass. So we don't have a lot of clarity. There's not a lot of clarity provided in that. But it was a metaphor. Because they did not have um, more specific language for types of sin, they used metaphors frequently. So they talked about sin being a heavy burden on us. They talked about sin being a stain. And they also talked about sin being a debt. So we have that kind of language around that, and those translations found themselves into different versions of scripture. So a lot of Protestants took on debt and debtors. Um, some of us that followed the Anglican and Catholic route still has trespasses. Friends, I want you to know, you can say whatever is comfortable for you to say, because part of our saying the Lord's Prayer is more about unity of spirit rather than uniformity of word. I would rather have you pray something that you actually mean <laughs> that sounds familiar to you, even if that means it's not the exact same word as the person next to you, if that's what helps you get into the space of this sort of prayer. Ooh, we're getting to the end. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but deliver us from the evil one. This is where Matthew is such a great writer. Right? And Jesus is also making these connections in the prayer. Earlier, we learn in Matthew that Jesus was tested, tried, and tempted. Um, the word in Greek is all the same for those three. Tested, tried, and tempted. <laughs> by the adversary, personified evil by Satan. Right? Satan was a common device in Hebrew literature. We understand that. Um, we have that going all the way back for Job, where um, they understood Job to be poetry, epic Hebrew poetry talking about God, and it was easy to have a device, a personified device of evil, the adversary called Satan, a trickster. But ultimately, Satan is defeated by God. Right? And some of us might have an anthropomorphic understanding of Satan. Others of us might lean into the metaphor. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Right? That's not really the important part as long as we take responsibility for our own sin. And as long as we pray for God's protection, which is what that is asking us to do. And we know somewhere along the line, our faith ancestors added that last part. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Now what do we do with all this? Right, this has been fun for me because I'm a nerd. So I love getting into this and I love sharing it with you all. How does this translate to our faith? What do we do with this particular prayer? So here's the thing. Those of us who are Methodists, we love a process. We love a method. It is in our name. That name was initially making fun of John Wesley, and we're like, we love it so much, we're going to call ourselves that. We love methods so dearly. That's who we are. We understand our faith also to be a process, particularly those of us who are theologically progressive. We love a process. We understand our faith as a journey where we mark certain points in time, but that isn't all of it. 
We understand our faith to be relational, relational. And so we highly value this journey as simply, um, we don't just value the outcome, right? The outcome isn't the thing we value most of all. So we value the act of prayer. We don't just simply praise the outcome. Frankly, oftentimes we don't understand the outcomes of prayer. We value prayer because it draws us closer to God and it helps us build this relationship. So this particular prayer reminds us of our relationship with God and one another. Last week during Mother's Day, we prayed to our mother and I said you could use whatever honorific you want. You can, again. Us praying this together is not about you saying all the right words. It's about your heart being aligned with those around you and us as a community understanding who it is we are. And like Andrea said, whose we are. You can say debts or trespasses. You can say whatever you want. Because this process of praying unites us in a community, right? A place that we belong. It also unites us to our past to the millions who have said this before, to the great clouds of witnesses, to our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our ancestors that prayed this prayer for us right here in this space. And this prayer also unites us in understanding that we don't all share the same struggles or joy all the time. For some of us, give us this day our daily bread is gonna hit differently than others at different times. We can say those things together and be reminded that we are in a community. And those words do feel different over time. And I think finally, the process of praying the Lord's Prayer has us lift to God and consider what God would have for us. Not just you, but us, the collective us. We are intentionally raising our consciousness to understand God does have a will for humans and God does have a relationship with us. The process, the method of praying is transformative. It can transform us if we let it. It changes us, hopefully continuing to mold us into how God created us to be. Right? This is a prayer um, where we don't believe it works like magic if we get what we want. We value the process of what it does within us, who it calls us to be together. We see that also in our confirmands this morning. Man, these kids went through an intense process. This was two years. Two years of Sunday school each week. They had retreats. They had art projects, and I heard about it. They had a small essay. They learned Christian history and theology and scripture. They learned Methodist history and tradition and what might be important today about our faith. We value their process. We value it highly, and we trust that they will make the decision that is best for them at this time. Right, I was trained to be um, a high school teacher. Right, that was my training. I did it for a year before I ended up going in ministry. And the thing I learned the most was that we need to teach kids how to be critical thinkers, not just regurgitate information and not just people please by falling into the outcomes that their family think is appropriate. And I'm gonna tell you, these kids took that seriously. They really did. So standing up here, it's not just because grandma wanted them to, it's because they wanted to be up here and be a part of this faith community. And there are some folks today who decided not to take their confirmation vows. They're not ready at this particular time, right? They They wanna know more about who God is and they struggle and they have moments of doubt 
and this is a big vow. And they're going to decide, hey, I want to affirm the process, but this is not for me right now. And I want us as a community to honor that as well, because they spent two years going through the same thing and with just as much integrity are going to stand up here at 11 and say, hey, thank you for your support. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for fulfilling your vow. I did my part, and here's where I'm at. And let us continue on this journey together. We value the process and journey of faith. So the Lord's Prayer, even with our seven petitions therein, which I went through, friends, it's ultimately about relationship. Our relationship with God and one another. We understand that relationships evolve and grow. The words that the confirmands and affirmands say are a statement of their relationship at this time. The Lord's Prayer is also a statement of relationship. Friends, these are more than rote words you have to say because they're up on a screen. They live in us. And so this week, I ask you to reflect on your faith and the places in your life where your love for God and neighbor feels alive and also those places where you might be going through the motions. And more so, I pray that you're inspired by these young adults who took this process so seriously and whose vows today are alive, heartfelt, and intentional. Amen. We are back. Uh-huh. <laughs> we are. We are. Hey, um, that, was a, that was an amazing recounting of kind of the history of the Lord's Prayer. Um, you, went, you went down a whole lot of places <laughs> that really go to uh, how we understand the development of Scripture and um, and the the manner in which kind of you didn't talk about politics per se, but some of it is is goes to politics in terms of how things get assembled. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you felt that was important. Yes, I think for two or three reasons, I, I wanted to talk about it on that particular morning. Um, one is that we did this service in combination with our confirmation and affirmation service. And we had uh, young people. I actually call them young adults. I wouldn't say they're young adults, but young people um, who've studied for two years and, and have looked at this pretty intensely, come to this point of discernment. And, um, you know, we don't have adults do the same thing. <laughs> so it was interesting in order to highlight, hey, this has taken some some discerning and some time and some processes and some study, and that that is worth our while, and that is something we value as Christians. Um, so there's that reason. And I think also, um, I personally find it fascinating, and I tend to think, hey, if I find this really interesting, <laughs> perhaps there is someone else who will find this interesting as well. And then third we forget, um, or we've never been taught how our scripture was put together. So I think um, it's edifying to learn about that process. For me, it does not detract anything from how powerful scripture is. Um, but when I learned that, it really helped me understand and, and make sense of some things that were really confusing and helped enliven my faith. And um, I was hopeful it would do that for others as well. And I think it did, um, you know, kind of to the point, you simply said, uh, you know, the scripture did not just fall out of the sky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that's important because we often 
culturally sort of act as though it just kind of fell as a gift of God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and anything but that is, is true. It was developed um, by lots and lots of uh, human eyes and, and hands passing, passing documents on. Um, you said that while we don't take scripture literally, we take, we take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Why is that an important distinction to make? Well, as I kind of mentioned and alluded to um, with other with other quotes that I shared, approaching scripture with a lot of humility, particularly in a um, in divisive times, I think is essential. So we hear scripture being quoted in order to oppress and harm other people, um, whether in individual familial relationships or friendships or you know uh, across society and culture. As if sometimes there's a, um, a monoculture way of being Christian. Um, so Christians believe X, Y, or Z. And oftentimes it's, it's just not that simple. And I think taking scripture seriously involves the academic study of how it was put together. Um, you know, when someone tells me they think that scripture is infallible or inerrant, it, it tells me a lot about what they might think about um, other <laughs> other people, you know, our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Because that's really, I think, what scripture helps us do is help helps us understand the story of the people of God over time. So, yeah, I think that's important that it's 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 the history of the people of God over time. Mm-hmm. It's a long not, time. <laughs> a long time. It, and it, it is the history of salvation over a long period of time. It's not mm-hmm. just about me and my salvation in this moment. One of the, one of the challenges, uh, I, I think, of of progressive Christianity or progressive movements within any faith tradition is that we are not likely to stand on our particular understanding of scripture in this moment and do battle over it. And yeah. so it makes it very difficult for us to feel like we have something to speak at all for when we're speaking with those um, who are perhaps dealing with the same issue, but speaking in a very dogmatic way mm-hmm. uh, and and talking about the revelation of God in Scripture being for this moment, not for a, a long period of history that, that tells a larger story than what we want to talk about in this po- particular political moment, talking about um, uh, uh, issues of choice, issues of guns, issues of... of uh, harm to persons who are uh, moving across the globe in refugee status. Mm-hmm. So, so those kinds of things, it makes it more difficult for progressive folks to speak a word out of scripture because we're less confident, uh, that's probably not a good word, we're, we, we feel less comfortable speaking uh, a dogmatic word about scripture because we understand it in a, in a much broader way and that, and that the Holy Spirit is part of this moment of discernment. Yeah. That was a whole lot of question. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, we um, we look th- we look at the breadth. You know, like it's really hard. Uh, despite my best attempts yesterday, because I had a few quotes that were close to bumper stickers, but it's really hard to pull out a verse yeah. <laughs> and to have that be. Here's the totality of what this looks like. And um, the more I personally learn about scripture, the more humble I end up being in terms of my own interpretation and, and how correct that is necessarily, and making room for others and their interpretations. And for some folks, they've never encountered pastors uh, like us in that way, who are like, yeah, I can see how you could see it that way. And like, we can totally live in that sphere. Um, and we throw around the term, you know, progressive a lot. And I would love to do a specific particular podcast with you about what we mean 
But in this instance, I feel like what you were um, what you were talking about is that for those of us who are progressive Christians, we we highly value orthopraxy over orthodoxy, which means we highly value right practice over right belief. So we have a really wide sphere of what we could understand someone to have a, a belief that's in line with who we are. Um, but we look at our actions, you know, like, are, does this not cause any harm to people? We value that, you know, over someone articulating a particular singular belief that everyone must hold. And so I think that's kind of evidence of um, our interpretation of scripture. We can have, we can have some humility with understanding that folks might understand scripture in other ways, but when there's harm being caused to people, we, we tend to more, we get a little more loud about that particularly. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think that orthodoxy um, tends to uh, do far more in telling other people mm. what they ought to believe than holding it to this is what I believe. This is mm-hmm. this is what I understand right belief to be for me. Mm-hmm. Um, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of content being there, being in that spot. It's here's what I think you ought to believe. Yeah, there's, and, there's a right belief. Yeah, there is a right belief and you either subscribe to that or you don't. Um, and, and I think in some ways, uh, and I think doing a, a podcast or series of podcasts on, on progressive Christianity would be helpful. Um, but I think the other side of it is because progressive uh, Christians are more likely to be about what are we doing around yeah. love, justice, um, uh, righteousness in the world. I think, I think we'd be in, in a good spot to be making sure we're living up to those standards and not just putting them off on somebody else to take care of. In, yeah, in the same way in that orthodoxy way. might yeah. be, hey, you need to believe this way. We we are more likely to be like, you need to act this way. And this is how, <laughs> you you know, like you need to figure this out as opposed to, hey, am I am I living um, in line with my own values? Yeah. You know, and doing some of that work that's a little more generous. Yeah, um, and I think we're better at talking about right action <laughs> than yeah. we are about actually doing right action. I think you're right. Um. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, so that's, I kind of wanted to just start us, um, you know, the Lord's Prayer, since it's only, you know, four and then five verses, it's a really good kind of case study um, to go through that with the congregation. And they hear this a lot from us, like they understand we're all about context, but I know I I really took us on the weeds and some things. I thought I could because um, folks are so familiar with the language that would be worth kind of pointing out, even if people don't get into aorist, you know, <laughs> tense or whatever. Just the idea that like, hey, here are these two different communities, right? And we don't know if, we don't know if Jesus said these words in Aramaic or in Hebrew. Like, we don't know. We don't even know what language he was speaking with these particular words. No one knows. We could guess. Uh, prob- you know. Probably Aramaic. He's, Most he's hanging with his buds at that point. Yeah. You know, but there's so many there's so many unknowns, and here's just one example of the most well known prayer for Christianity, where there's a lot of questions we have, and we can hold those questions and still hold how valid and important this prayer is for us together. Um, just with that understanding, it adds some complexity, and I think allows you to approach it with a little more humility. I, I think it's a, a helpful reminder that you know we often treat this as though this is what Jesus had to say about prayer. Period. Oh yeah. Um, it was it was a very off the cuff response to teach us to pray, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a it's a lovely little prayer that begs us to ask lots of questions about it, which mm-hmm. which is what you did and and did beautifully. Um, 
the the whole. I mean, if, if y'all want to have some fun, maybe this is another <laughs> podcast or preaching series. You know, just to look at the history of bread in Scripture and how that represents and the the the, the symbology yeah. that goes with bread, um, and how we are in community around bread. Mm-hmm. Really interesting stuff. So the, the the prayer sets some things out for us that are kind of iconic to the faith, but not this is this is the totality and the, the, nor is this the most important prayer necessarily. Yeah. No, certainly, yeah, not the most important prayer. I think the most universally known um, for the same reason that you said. Because the disciples were like, teach us to pray. And Jesus was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Here, here's a prayer. Here are some words. When you don't have the words, here are some for you. And it, it hits these parts. Um, I was excited to share the bits that were um, intentional. And, and I think political, obviously not, not in the sense that we might understand political today in a partisan sense, but just making statements about who, who we allow to be in charge um, in our own hearts and minds and I, I like to think of Jesus often as a little punchy, so that was fun for me <laughs> to be able to talk about. Um, whether, whether or not that's, you know, there are, other, there are other possibilities as well, which is interesting about this. Yeah, and, and politics in that time had a much firmer understanding of, of the word being uh, about the, the community seeking common good. Yeah. Um, and, yes. and Jesus seems to be all about that in this prayer. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. even pushing the edges of jubilee and calling us to forgiveness of, forgiveness of debt. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was it was um, yeah it was it was a great sermon in the midst of a of a lot of stuff going on in worship. Anything you wish you would have hit on that you didn't. I don't know. I don't think I could have fit anything else into that. Um, if I think about how I put it together, I would have cleaned up the structure a little bit. Um, I wasn't really pleased with that. And I think my, I could have made connections a little, you know, cleaner and clearer. Um, I often think that in retrospect, but you know, it, it preached. God will do what God does with it. Yeah. Um, and I just hope I, you know, d- didn't get in the way too much of it. As is the preacher's prayer. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah, there were oodles of rabbit holes I didn't go down, uh, but you all could do that sometime if you wanted. There are, listen, we could give you resources for all sorts of uh, grammar and linguistics for the biblical Absolutely. language. We've, we've, got, we've got introductory Greek and Hebrew texts mm-hmm. for you. Happy to talk with you about original <laughs> language, Aramaic. I do not know. Yeah, me either. Yeah, well. No idea. Um... Well, all right, so this coming week, uh, we go to one service, and it is Pentecost, mm-hmm. the coming and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the creation of the church, birthday cake. Mm-hmm. Are we on birthday cake? Uh, sure. I hope so. That'd yeah. be great. Who's arranging that? <laughs> you. Yeah. Hey, I would, uh, I would invite you. I'm ignoring you. Um, I would invite the uh, listeners, if you have things that you would like us to talk about as we think about uh, podcast uh, special episodes or things you would like us to do uh, if you'd like us to stop <laughs> you know we're happy to receive your opinions all right be well